When the game of life is rigged against you in every possible way, there's really no point in following the rules. At least that's the way Frederica Marm Mandelbaum saw things. She was a poor Jewish immigrant and a woman to boot. Everywhere she turned, it seemed the rules were designed specifically to keep her down. But Frederica was never one to accept defeat. If the game was rigged against her, then she'd just have to bend the rules to suit her. When that wasn't cutting it anymore, she'd throw out the whole board and start anew and make everyone else follow her lead. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll trace Frederica Mandelbaum's humble beginnings as a German-Jewish immigrant in New York City. We'll see how she picked herself up from humble beginnings and found a way to revolutionize organized crime forever. Next week, we'll discuss how Frederica sought to expand her criminal enterprise, We'll see how overreaching ultimately led to the Queen of Thieves being dethroned. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1800s, Prussia was an embittered country, ravaged by wars and poverty. Like many traditionally Catholic or Protestant countries, its Jewish citizens lived under austere restrictions. It was into this world that Frederica Henrietta Augusta Weisner was born in 1827. We don't know much about Frederica's childhood in Hanover, but her family was probably working class or poor like most Jewish families at the time, which meant life was a daily struggle. This was made worse by the fact that Jewish people weren't allowed to own land, so they had to get creative just to survive. Some made handicrafts to take to local markets, 
others facilitated commerce between farmers. Eventually, buying and selling was their only way of life, and things never really got easier. In the 1840s, a potato blight decimated crops in Prussia, creating several problems. Not only was there a deadly shortage of food, but local economies took a dive, many on society's bottom-most rungs, including Frederica and her family, came that much closer to complete ruin. Suddenly, families with too many mouths to feed would have been looking for ways to ease their struggles. One solution was to marry off older children, then send them into the world to fend for themselves. At the time, Orthodox Jewish communities relied on the ancient tradition of shiduk, or matchmaking, to ensure their survival. If parents couldn't make a match themselves, they might turn to a professional for help. Frederica made a match with a local peddler, Wolf Mandelbaum, and the two married sometime in her adolescence. Before the blight, Wolf's peddling had made him as decent a living as he could hope for. He traveled between farms and towns in the countryside, buying and selling livestock, grain, and vegetables. But by the time he and Frederica married, there wasn't much left to peddle. His already meager income dwindled further and then was harshly taxed. The newlyweds were barely scraping by and the psychological burden was heavy. It was during all this that 22-year-old Frederica gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Bessie. But despite this happy occasion, due to the revolution of 1848, the beginning of 1849 was a time of increasing unrest among Prussia's working class. Frederica and many of her neighbors were fed up with the conditions forced upon them by cold-hearted authorities. Enough was getting to be enough. Before we continue with Frederica's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we've done a lot of research for the show. There's been plenty of research that shows just how much poverty can negatively affect one's mental health. According to an article published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, poverty creates a context of stress in which stressors build on one another and contribute to further stress. Poor families experience more stressful events than others, including exposure to violence and discrimination. Then the compounding effect of these stressors puts them at even higher risk of mental health problems like depression and anxiety. These conditions can also increase hostility and aggression, so it's unsurprising that disgruntled citizens made their displeasure known. Hunger riots and an increased hatred of the monarchy led to an attempted revolution that was violently squashed by the German government in the summer of 1849. Unfortunately, the insurrection only increased animosity toward the region's poor, primarily Jewish citizens, and led to a severe rise in anti-Semitic restrictions. Jewish citizens were suddenly even more limited in terms of where they could live, what jobs they could do, and even whether they could marry. Because she was a young mother, it's unlikely that Frederica participated in the actual uprising herself, but we can probably trace her rebellious nature to having grown up in the turbulent environment. She certainly never forgot or forgave the unjust treatment she and her people suffered at the hands of German authorities. Still, she was keen to put it all behind her and start over somewhere new. 
Like many Jewish Germans of the time, the Mandelbaums set their sights on escaping to America. The supposed land of freedom and opportunity beckoned from across the Atlantic. So in 1850, the young family set sail. Wolf departed first and arrived in New York Harbor that July. Frederica and Bessie were set to follow two months later, which they figured would give Wolf plenty of time to find a beautiful American home for his family. Despite the dream of something better, 23-year-old Frederica was nervous to leave behind the only home she'd ever known. But as she stepped aboard the Erie, with little Bessie in her arms and everything she owned in her bag, the future shone before her like the sun on the water. Unfortunately, she wouldn't see that sun again for the entirety of her six-week journey. Third-class steerage passengers were kept below decks in cramped, dank accommodations. Frederica's head brushed the ceiling as she hunched her six-foot frame to fit through the narrow hallways. But the voyage wasn't only uncomfortable, it was also dangerous in a number of ways. No windows meant no sunlight, no fresh air. That, plus the fact that the bathroom was little more than a bucket in the corner, meant there were regular outbreaks of highly infectious diseases like typhus, cholera, and dysentery. Thankfully, Frederica and Bessie both survived the physically and mentally crushing journey. That September, Wolf met them at the port to welcome them to their new home, New York City. Like the port itself, New York was a bustling and busy place, full of people from all walks of life. When the Mandelbaums arrived in 1850, the city's population was already a staggering 500,000 people and climbing. But Frederica soon learned that life in America was not the font of hope and opportunity she'd been promised. New York's infrastructure wasn't able to keep up with the influx of people. Garbage filled the streets, tossed out of windows with nowhere else to go. Even worse, due to lack of indoor plumbing, poor neighborhoods stank of human waste collecting in gutters and outhouses. Still, it was home, and Frederica was determined to make it work as best they could. The family settled among fellow Jewish-German immigrants on the Lower East Side, then known as Klein-Deutschland, or Little Germany. Unfortunately, the housing available to them wasn't much better than life below deck had been. All they could afford was a lightless room in a six-story tenement. Built to shelter up to 10 families, the building was home to at least 20. To say Frederica was disappointed with the reality of her new life would be an understatement. She missed her family, and the crowded, disgusting city made her long for the sprawling countryside she grew up in. Huddled in their tiny room, Frederica wondered if they'd made a terrible mistake. Then things got much, much worse. Frederica was still struggling to adjust to their new home when baby Bessie was struck by one of the many rampant diseases that plagued immigrant neighborhoods. Frederica did everything she could, trying desperately to save her only child. But Bessie was too small and too sick, and there are some things a mother's love can't change. The little girl died, dealing Frederica a cruel blow 
in what seemed a life full of them. Even as he carried the weight of his own grief, Wolf tried to comfort his wife. It's possible her neighbors, fellow German immigrants, might have tried as well, but it's hard to imagine anyone beyond little Germany cared. Though the frequent outbreaks were symptoms of overcrowding and unsanitary conditions, wealthy native-born New Yorkers blamed immigrants themselves for supposedly bringing these diseases with them. Just like back in Prussia, the Mandelbaums found themselves blamed and punished for their own suffering. So not only did she deal with day-to-day financial stress, Frederica also experienced the ongoing trauma of discrimination. Add to that the grief of losing her child because of their terrible living conditions. Her entire life must have felt like a downward spiral, a game rigged entirely against her. It looked hopeless. There didn't seem to be a way out of the poverty they were in once again. Tens of thousands of immigrants battled for scant jobs, and more were arriving daily. To get by, many turned to sex work or crime. Wolf had resumed peddling to support his family, and after Bessie passed, Frederica refused to sit around waiting for him to return each night. So she joined him in the trade, eager to turn things around. Unlike some of their competitors, the Mandelbaums couldn't afford a horse or even a cart for that matter, so they carried their wares with them on their backs. Frederica started out selling fabric scraps and bits of silk. She realized pretty quickly that the people in her neighborhood had as little money to spend as she did. That meant that to truly turn a profit, she'd have to move beyond her enclave of fellow German speakers. And for that, she'd have to learn English. Luckily, working on the street and constantly negotiating gave her plenty of practice. It also put her in the path of pickpockets, shoplifters, and thieves. These petty crooks always had something tantalizing on offer. Usually they were items no one else was selling, and they were in a hurry to unload it. Some vendors might have thought themselves above dealing with petty criminals, but not Frederica. The law had never done her any favors, so she saw no reason to follow it. Not to mention she had a soft spot for those who'd been cast aside. Civilized society had looked down on her for her entire life. Outsiders were her people. Suffice to say, Frederica took to street business like a fish to water. She quickly displayed a natural talent for identifying quality goods and getting them for bargain prices. She could determine an item's resale value with a glance and never paid more than half that sum. And then, like any good retailer, she marked it up, selling her wares for double what she paid. Say a shoplifter approached her with a bolt of fabric worth $100. The most she would pay for it would be $50, but Frederica was an excellent negotiator and could often talk them down to $20. She'd then go to her buyer, asking for only $60. The buyer would be thrilled by the deal, the thief still made a decent buck, and Frederica would have turned a $40 profit on the transaction. She also never bought something without knowing who she might sell it to, and she had no shortage of eager buyers. She very quickly became the go-to middlewoman between less than legitimate sellers and reputable buyers looking for a deal. 
criminals knew her as the one to get them paid, while the more respectable levels of society knew her for reasonable prices and the ability to get almost anything they could want. Life was finally looking up for Frederica Mandelbaum. Business was steadily growing. For once, she and Wolf had a somewhat steady income. Her job meant she knew many of her neighbors and local business people. She was even picking up English fairly quickly. After seven years of struggle and tragedy, New York City was finally starting to feel like it might make good on its promise of opportunity. But when man makes plans, fate laughs. In 1857, New York was headed for one of the largest financial disasters the world had ever seen. Up next, Frederica Mandelbaum reshapes crime in New York City. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. By 1857, 
30-year-old Frederica Mandelbaum and her husband, Wolf, had been living in New York City for seven years. But persistent hard work as a street peddler was beginning to pay off as Frederica built her skills, stock, and network. But just as Frederica was hitting her stride, financial disaster struck. The economic crash of 1857 rocked New York City. On August 24th, the New York branch of Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company failed. Stockholders panicked and rushed to cash out, resulting in a plummeting stock market. Tens of thousands lost whatever financial security they had. Savings and jobs started to disappear, thrusting men, women, and children onto the street looking for affordable food, cheap goods, and work. As the national economy floundered, however, the street economy thrived and Frederica's fencing business boomed. There were suddenly hundreds more pickpockets and petty thieves hoping to turn baubles into cash, many of them children. Frederica took an interest in the youngsters, her motherly instinct kicking in. She always bought what they brought her and passed along pointers on how to improve. But the more hardened professional thieves didn't need anyone to tell them how to take advantage of the tumult. New York Harbor was full of ships stocked with dry goods, unsold to businesses that couldn't afford to pay full price. The scores were too good to pass up, so they plundered the vessels. And Frederica waited happily to take the bounty off their hands for her usual half price. Then she passed those savings on to her brand new large-scale buyers. Though she sold goods for twice what she paid for them, her prices were still well below market value. And her business model started making real money. By 1860, when other family businesses were still feeling the effects of the crash, the Mandelbaums moved to a slightly nicer home in Little Germany. It was there that they had another child, a son named Julius. He was her first child since the sudden loss of her daughter, Bessie, which still haunted her years later. Perhaps because of this, Frederica was highly protective of Julius and never let him out of her sight for very long. That protectiveness continued with her other children too. In 1862, she had another daughter who she named Sarah, and just two years later, a second son, Gustav. Even with her own family growing, Frederica still saw to her small band of protégés, the street children she had taken under her wing. Frederica had a special affinity for the young girls she hoped to mentor towards successful careers of their own. Careers in crime, that is. You see, Frederica firmly believed that women were just as capable as men were of success in business, legitimate or otherwise. She herself was a shining example of that fact. In this way, Frederica Mandelbaum was an early example of feminism. Without her, many of those young girls would have been forced into low-wage menial jobs or sex work. But this mother hen wanted better for the girls she called her little chicks. Like a nurturing mother, she wanted to give her girls the skills to support themselves financially without giving away their autonomy. She encouraged her little chicks to pick pockets and steal purses. 
Then when she felt they were ready, they graduated to shoplifting. Frederica made sure they focused on high-class stores, directing them to the small goods that would easily turn into big bucks. They sewed large pockets to the underside of their fashionable dresses and skirts, stuffing them with cashmere and silk scarves, jewelry, and bags, which they dutifully brought to Frederica. In return for a dishonest day's work, she paid her girls a percentage of the profits, and compared to the wages women could expect from legitimate jobs, working for Frederica could make a girl downright wealthy. Few things made Frederica more proud than seeing her girls succeed. But while she was happy to support and employ other women, to leave her protective employ was to court disaster. At least one of her protégés learned the limits of Frederica's generosity the hard way. Lena Kleinschmidt was a young thief who'd done very well working under Frederica's tutelage, but around 1835, she decided working for the boss wasn't enough for her. So Lena up and moved to Hackensack, New Jersey, and left Frederica in the dust. She pretended to be the wealthy widow of a mining engineer and began climbing the Hackensack social ladder, all while continuing her thieving ways. She even had the gall to return to New York City two days a week to plunder on Frederica's turf. That one of her best girls would abandon her broke Frederica's heart. Then news reached her that Lena was stealing her moves, fashioning herself into the Mandelbaum of Hackensack. When Frederica heard this, the former protege was dead to her. She almost certainly put out word to her contacts that Lena was persona non grata. Then one day, Lena picked the wrong pocket. It belonged to the wife of a big-time New Jersey judge. When police searched her house, they found troves of stolen goods, and she was arrested. When news of her arrest reached New York, Frederica shed not a single tear. With no one to come to her rescue or defense, Lena spent the rest of her days in prison. Though the experience with Lena left a bad taste in her mouth, Frederica continued to do what she could to improve women's prospects, but it was an important lesson in remembering to protect herself first, something she kept in mind as her success grew. And growth is exactly what happened. Her dealings may have been criminal, but they were also undeniably profitable. And in 1865, Frederica did something she never dared to dream she'd be able to do. She and her husband, Wolf, signed a two-year lease on a three-story clapboard house in the 13th Ward, a nicer area of Little Germany. With an apartment on top for her family, the main level of the building was a storefront with a basement for storage. Wolf's health had been failing after years of working the streets, so he opened and managed a legitimate dry goods store with the help of his three children. But the real business took place in the back room, where Frederica met with buyers and sellers away from the open street. It was around this time in 1867, Frederica had her fifth and final child, a daughter named Anna. That said, she loved each of her children fiercely. She made it known to her associates that her kids were her first priority. On occasion, she called off deals if something to do with one of them came up. 
She also did her best to keep her children separate from her fencing, though her criminal ways were good enough for the other girls she tutored, and her eldest, Julius, occasionally ran errands for her. Frederica was determined that her children would never be involved in crime. Like all mothers, she wanted better for her kids than she had. Though she was always aware of her position as an outsider, Frederica had never accepted it. She spent her whole life searching for the place she felt like she belonged. The criminal world was it for her, but for her children's sake, she was prepared to knock down more barriers. The need to belong is a driving force in human nature. Psychologists Roy F. Baumeister and Mark R. Leary called it a fundamental human motivation. Put simply, belonging is a basic human need that has devastating consequences for our psyche when we're denied that feeling. A 2019 study published in InPsych magazine showed that the brain doesn't perceive social pain differently than physical pain, and by that standard, Frederica had endured a lifetime of agony. Her homeland had rejected her for being Jewish. America despised her for being foreign. Women were second-class citizens everywhere. Still, she worked hard for years to overcome each obstacle set in her path, and now she was so close to acceptance she could taste it. Frederica was done being ostracized. Frederica's enterprise had taught her the rich were morally no different than the poor. The upper classes were just as willing to exploit and cheat others for their benefit as criminals were. The difference was they were rich enough to get away with it. And now, so was Frederica. So she decided it was time to introduce herself and her family to polite society. And she figured the best way to get the right sort of attention was to throw extravagant dinner parties. Dinner parties were the 1800s equivalent of social networking. Being invited to one was an honor, but hosting meant you were a big deal. These parties, held at the Mandelbaum's well-furnished home in Little Germany, were a testament not just to Frederica's growing wealth, but also to the wide and varied network she had built. She invited all of her clients and associates, prepared her home, set the tables with fine linens, china, and silverware. Frederica herself sat at the head of the table, the hub encircled by the spokes of the machine. Around her, notorious criminals rubbed elbows with New York's upstanding citizens. Judges and businessmen made small talk with thieves and conmen. Though they had traveled to one of the poorest neighborhoods, she was determined to make sure her upper-class guests didn't feel out of place once they stepped inside. The luxe apartment above the shabby-looking storefront belonged to a much different neighborhood. Frederica had installed hand-carved woodwork along the tall ceilings. A once simple fireplace had been turned into an ornate centerpiece flanked by bookcases. Plush carpets covered the floors. Rich draperies hung from the large windows. Chandeliers and golden candelabras lit the rooms dotted with upholstered sofas and large leather chairs. Of course, all of it came courtesy of Frederica's illicit suppliers. Whether New York's elite liked it or not, 
this German-Jewish immigrant had become someone with power and influence. And it was clear they needed her much more than she needed them. Though her reputation was what brought in business, it was also putting her on the radar of New York City's more powerful players. And the time was fast approaching for Frederica to prove how much she wanted a seat at the table. Up next, Frederica's empire takes another leap forward. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. Frederica Mandelbaum had been fencing pilfered goods throughout New York City for most of the 1850s and 60s, and her years of hard work made her a powerful player in the criminal scene. Eventually, she drew the attention of some of New York's finest criminals. Experts in the art of the fence, buying and selling stolen goods, lined up to pass on their years of hard-earned knowledge. Frederica's mentors included the godfather of fencing, Ephraim Snow, Joe Eric, who'd been called, quote, the most successful, adroit, and daring fence known to the police annals of the city, and Abe Greenthal, who was, according to the New York Times, one of the oldest and shrewdest criminals in the country. Each of these men was getting on in years and thinking about who might carry on their legacy. And Frederica seemed like a great candidate. Like them, she was Jewish and she was already making a name for herself. Perhaps most importantly, she was willing to learn. And the most important thing Frederica's elders taught her, you have to pay to play. That meant bribes. So she set aside a portion of her increasing profits to grease the palms of local police. In the 1860s, corruption was the norm in New York City, and many cops were only too happy to turn a blind eye to crime for a price. In some cases, the police actively participated in Frederica's schemes. When people came to them for help finding stolen property, the cops usually knew just where to find it, and they went straight to Frederica. With the police acting as pseudo-brokers, she would offer to sell the property back to its original owner, and her price included a kickback for the officer. It was only too easy, and it was oh-so-profitable. But her continued success meant bribing further and further up the food chain. Soon, Frederica was paying off folks at every level of the city government and judiciary. One of the most influential pockets she helped line was that of boss William Marcy Tweed. In 1864, boss Tweed was the leader of the infamously corrupt Tammany Hall politicians. 
Tammany Hall started a committee of the Democratic Party in New York, but over the years, they basically became the mob, and Boss Tweed was one of their most infamous leaders. He had rigged elections and otherwise bought his cronies' positions at every level of city government. Through them, Tweed controlled practically everything in the city, including the treasury. He pushed through approval for projects with massively inflated budgets, then pocketed the leftover funds. In this way, he embezzled upwards of 30 to $200 million. But that wasn't his only source of income. Along with every other criminal in New York, Frederica paid Tweed for his protection from police, politicians, and other city officials. The two also got along famously. Tweed admired her success in the male-dominated criminal world, and she regularly invited him to her dinner parties. It might have been at those dinner parties where Frederica took inspiration from the way Tweed ran his organization. In exchange for providing for and protecting them, his men gave him undying loyalty. So Frederica made sure to take good care of the various criminals in her network. When they noticed this, some people said it was her mother's instinct at play, so she earned the name Marm, or sometimes Mother Mandelbaum. And to a certain extent, she had come to think of her cadre of criminals as family. She was known to have said, they call me Ma because I give them money and horses and diamonds. But really, it was just good business sense. The 1857 economic crisis and the Civil War had certainly created no shortage of low-level criminals, but those with a true talent for thieving were hard to come by. It would do her no good for her best pickpockets and thieves to end up in prison. So, in a move that was completely revolutionary for the time, she set up a fund to cover bail and legal fees. She paid $5,000 a year, which would be close to $100,000 in 2021, to retain the law firm of Howe and Hummel. It was cheekily referred to by some as the Bureau for the Protection of Criminals. Despite the tongue-in-cheek nickname, the fund wasn't a charitable organization. Though many wives of unlucky thieves came to her for help, they were told they'd have to work for it, just like she did. And Frederica had certainly earned a name for herself. She had single-handedly revolutionized the criminal world. Before, loosely affiliated gangs found varying degrees of success, but when they were caught, that was the end. Her predecessors, formerly the best in the fencing business, dealt with constant turnover, which is never good for business. Frederica offered a mutually beneficial relationship. Criminals agreed to work for her and gave her a percentage of their earnings. In exchange, they were paid and protected. Most importantly for Frederica, they were beholden to her. Thanks to Frederica, crime in New York became organized. According to the Brooklyn Eagle, Frederica Mandelbaum was the one who first put crime in America on a syndicated basis. Even with her efforts to keep her best and brightest out of trouble with the law, by 1870, 43-year-old Frederica was thinking about the future. She'd been mentoring kids with potential for years, especially young girls, but she saw greater need for experienced criminals to pass their knowledge on to younger generations. 
So she established a crime school on Grand Street in Lower Manhattan, not far from police headquarters. There, young hopefuls could learn burglary, safe-cracking, and pickpocketing from the best of the best. The school created a steady stream of well-trained talent for her operation. But Frederica was also extremely proud to be providing kids with what she saw as a valid career path. Her star pupil was Sophie Lyons, a teenager who was born into a family of thieves and criminals. In fact, her parents were serving time when she arrived at Frederica's school. Frederica thought of and treated Sophie like a third daughter, one she was okay with exposing to the criminal underworld. In the girl, she saw everything she had always wished she was. Having learned from the top fences of her time, Frederica longed for an heir of her own, an heiress specifically who could soak up all of her hard-won lessons and take over when Frederica retired. She had already decided her own children weren't an option, and her husband Wolf, whose health had been declining for years, wasn't going to outlive her. Taking care of him was making Frederica face thoughts of her own mortality. Having someone like Sophie to take over eased her mind. To Frederica, Sophie was the perfect heiress, and with just a little guidance, the future looked bright for them both. By 1870, Frederica had all but conquered New York, and her reputation was spreading down the entire East Coast. First, her influence reached nearby New Jersey. This meant news and goods came to her from all over the country. If you robbed a stagecoach or train, Frederica was the one with the operation to move your merchandise. Her three-story clapboard house, with storefront and basement storage, had served her well as a base of operations. But as her reputation grew, so did her stock, and therefore her need for storage. It was time for a facilities upgrade, so Frederica invested in warehouses throughout New York and New Jersey, which was a big-time business move. At the same time, she bought a few tenements and began collecting legitimate income in the form of rent. Though she could have bought a new home in any of the city's wealthier neighborhoods, Frederica chose to remain among her neighbors in Klein Deutschland. But it was more than an act of loyalty to the people who'd made her what she was. Staying in Little Germany was good for business in many ways. Her base of operations was just a few blocks from the police station and district courts, which made it easier to maintain beneficial relationships with the authorities. Her enterprise also created jobs for local artisans. She hired goldsmiths to melt down and reshape precious metals, jewelers to reset stones and clean stolen trinkets, craftsmen to refurbish and upholster ill-gotten furniture, all these tradespeople were necessary to remove any identifying marks and prepare items for resale. Frederica's fencing operation had become the driving economic engine of little Germany. She was a one-woman financial stimulus. Finally, Frederica Mandelbaum was living the American dream. She had built a well-oiled machine and would have been hailed as the most successful businesswoman of her time had the product she moved been honestly come by. But to Frederica, success was success, no matter what people said. 
and her largest score yet was on its way. In 1871, tragedy struck when a fire raged through the majority of the city of Chicago over three days. More than 17,000 structures were destroyed, 300 people died, and hundreds of thousands were left homeless. In the days after the fire, looting and lawlessness ran wild. Eventually, martial law was enforced to return order to the decimated city. But by that stage, a vast portion of the looted property was already headed for Frederica Mandelbaum in New York. Just like after the economic crash, other people's tragedy turned to profit in her hands. But Frederica's American dream came crashing down in 1875 when her husband Wolf died at the age of 51. Though he wasn't visibly involved in her criminal empire, Wolf had always been Frederica's biggest supporter and closest confidant. She didn't trust or rely on anyone as much as she did him. Wolf was buried in a family plot in Queens, and Frederica saw to it that fresh flowers were placed at his grave every day. But as far as we can tell, that's about all she could manage. Frederica sunk into a dark mourning period. She abandoned her businesses, the shop, the tenements, and the fencing. The queen was laid low by the loss of her king. She'd been through so much in her life, leaving her homeland, the loss of a child, and discrimination. Now this, it was too much to bear. Those around her wondered if she'd ever recover. What would happen without the great Frederica Mandelbaum? Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Frederica's story. As she comes to terms with the loss of her husband, the queen of fences makes a spectacular return to her business. For more information on Frederica Mandelbaum, amongst the many sources we used, we found Queen of Thieves, the true story of Marm Mandelbaum and her gangs of New York by J. North Conway, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 